All right, we've got Wisconsin BHA report. I don't even know what the episode this is. I should probably get back on that. But uh, we're we're doing the intro right here. Got my co-host Kelly Van Beek. What's up, Kelly? Hey, Bill. We just we just wrapped up recording of uh, the 2022 R3 episode, and we we touched on a lot, and it was good. It was awesome. It's uh, I think a little bit or a lot different than most R3 conversations in a lot of especially hunting, fishing, trapping uh, groups. And so I, I hope a lot of people uh, enjoy it, are challenged by it, grow from it, educated by it. What are your thoughts? Really, uh, I hesitate to, to use the word traditional because what does that even mean? I mean, traditional is grounded in your my views of outdoor recreation, right? Um, but I think hopefully what it does is challenge the traditional views of the predominant group that invest in hunting and fishing in Wisconsin right now, but that doesn't mean that it's the quote traditional group. So that's what struck me about the conversation was uh, reaching beyond the typical folks that you and I might try to engage in hunting and fishing or other outdoor pursuits. I'm thinking intentionally like Chris mentions about how we do that and who we're talking to and what their barriers might be. Yes. Good clarification. Good. Uh, good catch there. Uh, where was I? Where was I? Well, so going off of that, we were, we were just talking the, the R3, the R3 podcast on or episodes on this podcast on the Wisconsin BHA report. This is, this is year three. We've, we have the first R3 episode on the YouTube channel. And last year we definitely touched on it with our episode with Dr. Baker in the Wisconsin uh, deer hunting heritage board position. It's a mouthful. Um, so I guess, what are, what are your thoughts in, in our third, third year of this, you're now a uh, Artemis Great Lakes ambassador. You just had a, a great uh, habitat work day, which in my view is a lot about um, what successful R3 looks like. So where's your head at right this year in 2022? Part of the reason I wanted to do the habitat event first as sort of like the gateway to outdoor things with Artemis was I feel like we can't necessarily have a conversation about something as, I don't know, for lack of a better word, violent um, or aggressive as hunting until folks have an appreciation for habitat, for land, for public land. Um, I wanted to start there first and meet people on common ground, which is kind of what what is mentioned during the podcast episode too, how do you engage people ultimately in something like hunting um, without taking this long view of maybe you need to engage them in the outdoor space in a different way initially. So you build a comfort level and camaraderie that ultimately allows them to feel comfortable in a hunting space. So that's what, to me, the Artemis event was about. And we didn't really talk about hunting at the event, but um, it was certainly a great way to engage a community of women. It was a um, advertised as a women only event. And we had around 30 people show up, which was awesome uh, on a less than ideal weather day to come manage some <laughs> Leo scratching around in the background, making herself known. Um, that came to manage uh, natural community habitat type 
learned a little bit about small engines and using saws of various kinds, whether that was a brush saw or a chainsaw. Some folks preferred to use hand lappers. Uh, some folks preferred to just provide guidance. All of it was welcome at the event. Uh, and we also did a little bit of uh, uh, plant ID and general habitat 101. Why are we doing what we're doing out here? What kind of wildlife might this benefit? So it built that foundation for appreciation of the land that ultimately can lead to something like a hunting endeavor. And we had really great feedback from the ladies. Um, they want more of it. They, they love being around a community of hardworking women while they're doing this work. They felt vulnerable and safe to ask questions that maybe they wouldn't otherwise ask. And I think they'll come back for more of those events, which is the, which is the idea, right? We're building a, we're, we're starting, like, like Chris mentions in the, in the podcast episode, we start at one, in one spot and then with intention can build over time into something else like a hunting conversation. Maybe we won't get there, maybe we will, but starting at that place of common ground was important to me to do for Artemis. And I think it was a successful way, successful uh, entry point for a lot of women in Southern Wisconsin in my community to do so. Awesome. I love it. Yeah, that was, it, it sounded like a awesome event, workday event, just event, event in general, especially for um, you know, this, this long-term conversation we're having with people with the outdoors habitat, the importance of habitat, more of it, public land, all that. And then eventually hunting, fishing and trapping. Uh, Kelly, before we, uh, before we jump into the podcast episode, what, what hat are you wearing? We gotta, we gotta cover that for everyone before we dive in. Oh man, Bill, I'm wearing your, I'm wearing the latest and greatest, uh, Bill Kepke gift to Kelly hat. This is a freaking classy hat, man. I love this hat. It's quickly become my favorite hat. I wear it to all my, you know, like, uh, black tie events now. Um, yes. Like my, like my going out hat, you know, nope. not my work hat, but my going out hat, this vortex hat. And Chris mentions vortex and potentially some collaborations he's going to have with vortex on the podcast. So cool intersection there. I know I've worn a vortex hat before. I think I wore a vortex hat on the very first episode. So this one is, it's been a while and nice. I just like this hat. So Excellent. thanks man. Thanks You're for giving it to me. And, it, and I think this was, you got this from BHA stuff, right? So it's <laughs> sort of like land gives me a hat, but not really. Cause yep. it still hasn't been. Yeah, that's exactly what it, it's supposed to be. It's a precursor hat from land because yeah, he hasn't given you a hat, hat yet. Exactly. <laughs> that was exactly my thought process. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you enjoy the hat and I'm uh, I'm excited to share this episode. So thanks for thanks for co-hosting as always uh, as we head into year three of the podcast. All right, here we go. Uh, we are we're back with the Wisconsin BHA report. Your host, Bill Kepke. I'm joined by Wisconsin board members, Joe Steffen, Brock Rosencrantz. Thanks for joining me, guys. Glad to be here, buddy. We've got a uh, awesome guest today, Chris Kilgore, founder of Color in the Outdoors. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Great to be here. Appreciate the invite. Awesome. We have, this is every year we, uh, we circle back. We want to touch on cover the, the topic of R3. So recruitment, retention, reactivation in the outdoor space. And 
Um, obviously, as backcountry hunters and anglers, you're going to see us involved in a lot of learn to hunts, learn to fish, learn to trap style programs here in Wisconsin uh, with Pheasants Forever, National Turkey Federation, uh, Becoming an Outdoors Woman, all these great programs uh, and other organizations that we partner with. What's uh, really exciting and cool about Chris's program that we wanted to highlight is the the importance of place in the outdoors so people being comfortable in the outdoors seeing diversity uh in these outdoor spaces and the how he got involved in that and how he's um going around implementing that program and bringing awareness to it so before we we dive into chris's story uh joe brock you guys want to give us the the quick and dirty of why you guys love r3 and what we've been doing here at the state level sure yeah, I mean, you guys have heard me talk on the podcast before about like my passion for R3 and um, obviously I've been involved with it for a very long time and, and had some pretty cool opportunities. I think we talked on the last podcast where actually was part of the Sandhill hunt we just did a program with a couple uh, couple months ago. So um, COVID kind of kicked our butts when it came to running programs. The DNR kind of shut them down. So we're super stoked to get, get at it again and, and get the ground running. So uh, we're going to bring back some of our previous programs. So the biggest one being our learn to bow hunt program, um, which is a seven week inclusive course where the participants learn not only the techniques and fundamentals of archery, but also each night there's a lesson plan that culminates to a um, weekend hunt. And again, that's going to be a learn to archery hunt. And it kind of builds on the learn to turkey, learn to deer with a rifle. So it's kind of like a stepping the next step for those that, want to get involved with archery or if archery is all they want to do i mean we take those folks too so um brock has some other ideas planned and i'll let him kind of speak on that like i said the biggest thing on the books right now for for long term or big is bringing back their bow hunting program but uh yeah super excited to be here and excited to get back at getting folks in the outdoors yeah and uh i'm new to the podcast you guys have never heard me on here before i'm uh new to the board i uh just I came on the board to be the R3 chair and R3 is just really important to me because that's how I got into hunting I got in uh with a really great mentor that took me duck hunting and turkey hunting um my dad taught me how to fish but he wasn't a hunter so uh learn to hunt for how I got into it and it's just such an important way to really spread the love of the outdoors and not even about hunting um we were talking before the podcast about bird watching and stuff like that and uh i mean it's just really just loving the outdoors and just being out there but um with our stuff we have some learn to hunts coming up uh we are doing one with chris here down in the southeastern part of the state for uh, turkey uh match with pheasants forever as well uh, we'll be setting up one. I think we're aiming for May 27th and 28th for a late season one for over in the Driftless area. So that would be great if we can get some people signed up for that and looking into doing that. Um, we're going to be doing a lot more stuff after COVID, like Joe was saying, really kind of kicked their butts. We're kind of really trying to hit the ground running. We're going to be doing some pheasant, uh, learn to hunt one in the lacrosse area and got word today that we'll going to be trying to run one down in the uh, area of our newest one of our other new board members Alec Beckers he's going to be trying to run that um so yeah we're going to try and run another trout or not not another trout we're going to try to start running trout 
learn to fish this spring as well too. Uh, we're going to continue with our rifle hunts and just really try to add in anything else that we can do. Any board members that uh, have their specialties, I think we're going to try to get them to run some learn to hunts as uh, well. And not learn to hunt, just learn to get out to the outdoors. Yeah, and we one of the other things we talked about, Brock and I spitballed, you know, we've always done the actual hunt, but we're going to try to get in maybe a 3D shoot or some trap shoots, you know, just getting people out doing those kind of things as well. And um, the other big one is we're hoping to do a learn to ice fish this coming winter. So we couldn't squeeze it in this year, but um, that's a big one that isn't a real popular one right now. And so we want to try to jump into that next year. And I would be amiss if I didn't ask Brock, you got to talk about how you still have your, your calls from your first hunt and how important they are to you. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that we really want to do too, is get like everybody that is really coming on their first hunt, their first call, because like, I have my first box call. I don't hunt with it because I dare not because I leave calls in the woods all the time. Uh, but it just, it's just Sharpie on there. It just says my name and 2006, I think it was, or five, maybe. I think it says I haven't looked at it in a bit, but it's one of my most prized possessions. I mean, it's probably a $15 call that doesn't sound the best, but <laughs> it's what I learned on its little box call. And I mean, it doesn't even have a brand name on it. So it's, I mean, that's the stuff that, I'll always remember is those first hunts. I didn't get a bird my first hunt. It was early spring. I saw a ton of them, but just didn't get one. But my uh, first duck hunt was great, but deer hunted for four years before ever getting anything. And so, I mean, it's not about getting anything. It's just about getting people out there and really learning about the love of the pursuit and the love of the outdoors. So we're super excited to bring folks in and share those memories, but yeah, that's the R3 update on Wisconsin BHA's front. Love it. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Brock. With that, Chris, uh, thanks for joining us, man. Uh, what, what's your what's your outdoor story? What what what, uh, what gets you outside? What brought you outside? And why do you love sharing that passion with everyone else? Well, it all started when I was a little boy. No, I'm sorry. I just wanted to make it sound, you know, dramatic. Uh I actually, I've spent pretty much my entire life outside. My parents were both educators. They both uh, were really um, active outdoors people themselves. Uh, interestingly enough, I, I mean, I started out, you know, doing all the hiking, canoeing, camping, that sort of thing. My, because they were both educators, we got our summers free. And uh, I was really fortunate. My sister and I, interestingly enough, when we were kids, you know, we were like, oh, I don't want to do this. I don't want to drive everywhere. But you look back and you're like, that's some of the coolest experiences we anyone could possibly have. You know, we, we, we traveled in an old stick shift van, drove all over the country, uh, got to see all kinds of different parts of the, of the country, but primarily wild spaces. Uh, we, I, I didn't really stay in a hotel, to be honest with you, until I was a teenager, I think. Uh, most of the time we were staying in a, a tent or a pop-up camper or something like that while we were on the road in the summertime. Um, always was uh, looking for bugs and frogs and turtles and things like that. When I was a kid, I lived near a park. So I've spent a lot of my time playing in the park. So I lived down the road from a lake. So uh, I really do feel very, very fortunate for kind of where I was. But um, uh, throughout that time, interesting, you know, at a young age, I didn't hunt. My parents weren't hunters. I had uh, relatives that lived out of state in different areas that did, but I never really got an opportunity to spend time with them when I was, when I was younger had a friend down the road that uh, his dad hunted. And so I kind of learned some of the basics from him. 
and um, never look back. I mean, I've been self-taught primarily at the beginning for, for bow, for rifle, for shotgun, for all those types of things. Um, uh, worked in the law enforcement community. So I sharpened my skills with, with, you know, accuracy and that sort of thing. But uh, teenage years, late teens into my early twenties, actually, I, I did most of that learning myself. And, and back then, um, you know, we didn't have all the access to all the websites and apps and things that we do now. So there's a lot of printing of material and finding books to read and, and that sort of thing to to learn. And then I think some of the best lessons I learned and, and mentoring I got was standing at the counter of the various sporting goods stores that I was buying things from and listening to the old timers tell me I was doing something wrong or, you know, telling me I was doing every once in a while I got, okay, yeah, you're doing okay. But most of the time they spent their time giving me grief about what I was not doing right. Uh, but that was a great place and a great way to learn. And, um, you know, I think that that we could all agree on the fact that more times than not, folks that do spend time in the outdoors, that do have a passion for the outdoors, uh, very similar to all, all the stories that y'all have told so far, uh, folks are far more apt to want to teach and mentor than they are to want to give grief and, and you know, just discourage people from doing the same. So uh, I was uh, to that point of turkey hunting. I remember the first First year I decided I was going to turkey hunt. I again read a bunch of stuff and and got a bunch of calls. I had slate calls and a pot call and a box call and diaphragms and you name it. And and uh, bought. I had the shotgun. I had all the gear. I bought a couple of those foam decoys that always look somewhat dilapidated when you try to put them on the you know on the ground with a stick and and uh, got out there. And to that same point, uh, that first day, you know, like Brock was saying, saw a bunch of them. None of them came in. I had I had a Tom fanning out in the field. It was you know perfect, you know kind of picturesque setting. That bird never came in, and I, I got back to the to the store the that afternoon and uh, was kind of complaining about it. And one of the one of the folks said, "Well, what way? What, what direction was the decoy facing?" And I said, well, "What are you talking about?" He said, "What direction was the decoy facing?" I said, "Well, I don't know. It was probably facing you know like out towards the field." And he said, "Well, that's why you never got the Tom in because you're supposed to have him face you." And I was like, what? And he said, well, there, he said, he's, he's not performing for you, you big dummy. He's performing for those, for those hens he thinks they're real. And so sure enough, next day I went out and turned him around and about an hour later, I got a Tom. So, um, you know, those are lessons learned in the field, literally. And, uh, um, you know, I, I guess to that point, uh, experiences like that. Uh, and then of course, you know, I, I, I give my parents full credit for, sparking that that passion and desire to be outside since I was a little kid and those two things combined um, along with uh, you know my background in education now I mean it, it's it's a real passion of mine to get more and more people outside and create more access so that's kind of what started it all awesome I love I think uh, anyone that's turkey hunted can relate to that story <laughs> uh, so what did it, I guess, what from there, you know, there's, there's a, there's a love of love of the outdoors, love of hunting, all these things. Um, how did you go about building the organization and deciding like to help other people? Well, I think really what, what did it for me again, you know, to this point of kind of getting more in, getting more people outside and creating this inclusive space is when I was young, there weren't a lot of folks that looked like me to be very blunt when I was outdoors. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time outside, played with a lot of young kids, did a lot of different things in different spaces, but there were very few 
kids that look like me. And, and the more I would have conversations with my friends when I'd get home from a weekend trip or a camping outing or something like that, I'd say, oh, I did this or I did that. And oftentimes they'd just say, well, we don't do that. And we insert different group here, right? Um, and uh, so I said, well, I guess we do because I'm one of the we and I was just out there last weekend. So um, the more I realized that that part of that part of that uh, pushback, if you will, or, or argument against doing those things were, you know, there's multiple layers to that. And we could probably spend six podcasts talking about it. But uh, the reality is, is that in many cases, uh, there's not a lot of inclusive space out there. People don't feel welcome. Uh, it's not just about the overcoming the fear of the outdoors like many folks have to. There's not a lot of, you know, folks that have never been outside or haven't, haven't grown up that way, haven't grown up spending time outdoors. There's a lot of, you know, mystery, a lot of myth. If you watch scary movies or TV, that's where all the bad things happen, right? So you have to kind of get over some of that stuff. And then, you know, when animals attack on network TV, you know, they got to get over that. And so there's a lot of things, I think, uh, that tend to deter people from, from wanting to explore the outdoors. I actually had a conversation with a colleague today, um, a, a professional that I work with who said, yeah, you know, I'm going to enjoy the outdoors by looking at it at 4K resolution on my television set and air conditioning. Uh, and I was like, well, that's fine, but I still will do my best to be that mosquito buzzing in your ear to get you outside and get you enjoying things. So uh, that's really, I think what, what really it sparked me the most to, to start a more formalized, hey, let's get together as a group and go do things was to continue to try to lead by example, for lack of a better way of putting it, and saying, hey, I do this and I'd be happy to, to show you how I do it and talk to you about why I do it. And um, it started out, again, even as a teenager, just trying to get my friends out to, to go out for camping outings or just spend some time outside and go for a hike, go for a canoe, you know, go for a paddle, whatever the case may be, fishing, et cetera. And then as time progressed, more people were interested, more people expressed interest, more people asked if I would take you know, their family out or whatever the case may be. And that's kind of how Color in the Outdoors started. Um, the whole time, you know, really being intentional about not necessarily saying we only work with this group or we only work with that group, but very intentionally saying, how can we continue the conversation amongst a lot of different groups as to how we can create this space and environment in a welcoming and safe way? Um, and, you know, looking at it from a conservation perspective, if we're not all on that same page, if we're not all spending time outside appreciating the outdoors, but then doing what we can to keep it appreciatable, um, then we're, we're falling short, right? So uh, I've heard a lot of arguments from people about, you know, their own closed-minded beliefs and ideologies and as to why they don't like this person or that person or this group or that group. And I said, well, if you like to fish and you like to hunt and you know, this person or that person like to do the same, you have something in common, whether you like it or not. And, and let's build on that commonality instead of talk about our differences. And in many cases, more times than not, you know, as, as all of you know, nature is the great equalizer, right? So you spend some time outside, you spend some time around a campfire or on trail, and you very quickly break down a lot of those barriers and you realize you have way more in common um, than you have as a difference. So um, that really, you know, seeing that in real time, seeing that on trail, seeing that uh, you know, in, in these environments, doing these activities has been a real encouraging uh, factor for me. Uh, but I think it's also opened a lot of eyes and a lot of doors for people in, in these outdoor spaces. And uh, so I just continue to work in that respect. I try to, to bring groups together, try to network, if you will, and, and try to bring different organizations and different individuals 
into spaces where they can share ideas, um, share activities and share, you know, I mean, I hate to sound too cliche, but you know, share memories. Um, and, and more times than not, these types of situations can create kind of an ambassadorship um, or some bridges there uh, to, to kind of deal with other situations in a larger kind of societal scale. So it's, it's rewarding in that respect. I think that, uh, you know, there, there still are situations and circumstances that can get a little dicey or, or put people at, you know, at, un, at in uneasy space. But uh, uh, I do think that, you know, as we continue to work towards breaking those barriers down and as, you know, programs like Color in the Outdoors and there's a you know, ton of other organizations as well um, that are doing similar things uh, across, you know, not, not only around the state of Wisconsin, but across the country, uh, the more we can do that and the more that we can engage with that common bond of love for the outdoors and stewardship in order to maintain that space for others, for the next generation and generations to come. Um, I think the, the more we have that, that, again, that commonality to build on. So we got the opportunity, obviously you got the chance to meet me during the COVID and the adventures of Joe goes when we got to do our, our crawfish boil. Um, yeah. And obviously at that point, you know, you had, you had kind of established the color in the, in the outdoors. So uh, when did a color in the outdoors officially begin? Like when was it founded? And then also what was like your first event and like, how did that go? Like, did you, I guess like the uh, starting an organization from the ground up is really interesting to me. I'm just curious, like how that first event went and then maybe an interesting piece of like, you know, probably the most eye-opening thing, taking folks not used to being outdoors, like that listeners might be interested in. Sure. Well, so unofficially, uh, Coloring Outdoors started about 20 years ago. And, um, you know, to that point, uh, I was working actually in the law enforcement community at that time. And we had some kids who were um, kind of involved in some, you know, trouble in the areas that we were working. And, and we just decided at one point that we're like, you know, we can do this one of two ways. We can chase kids after they do things wrong, or we can chase them down and try to get them to join us before they do something wrong or, or when they, when they're on that border, if you will. Right. So um, I would say one of the first things that, that we did back then was we took a bunch of kids out and said, Hey, let's, you know, let's just go to a, um, a nature trail and take a hike. And if you enjoyed that, then let's try something new. And the, the kind of the big, the big, um, uh, outing in that, that summer was we took kids to pops cave and went caving and then took them to wildcat mountain and camped overnight. And these are all kids, none of whom had ever been camping before none of whom had ever been in a cave before and quite a few of whom had never ever been outside of city limits, whether it be Madison or whatever other city that they grew up in and then came to Madison, they had never spent time, you know, in outdoor spaces. And this was Uh, 20 years ago. This was 20 years ago. Yeah. And um, so uh, we, it was part of another organization called the Zimbrick adventure program that was funded by an organ, you know, funded by a business in Madison, you might guess who. And um uh, we had a really, really good time. We saw, you know, a lot of those kind of preconceived um, tensions melt away pretty quickly when we got outside and all of those kind of goofy childlike fears that kids have of bugs and sticks and, you know, something brushing against their face or whatever, very quickly melted away. They were having far more fun than they were not. 
I mean, we, of course, we were caving. They got super muddy, and uh, you know, they just loved that. They weren't going to get in trouble for getting their clothes dirty. That was the whole idea, you know. And and uh, and experiencing something like that underground environment is is always something you know spectacular, in my opinion. And and then we took them, you know, up to the up to Wildcat Mountain and went and camped overnight. And and you know, these these kids didn't sleep probably more than ten minutes. You know, every noise was a monster. Everything was going to eat their face. You know, kind of thing. But it really was an amazing experience. And, and we found very quickly that, that, uh, um, you know, that word spread fast and they came back to their respective communities and they were telling their families and their friends, et cetera. And, um, fast forward to, to answer your question more specifically, we actually turned into a formal organization just a few years ago. And, um, it was because of all of these these kind of pop up activities that we consistently had done that you know people were saying we really need to make this a more formal thing. You need to do this more you know, intentionally, if you will. Um, and and we wound up with you know similar results. I mean, we we had we had a variety of hikes scheduled, and we had people show up every single time. And and the beautiful thing about kind of even in reaching out to the kind of our target audiences, if you will, is we had you know differences in age from from eight years old all the way up to 78 years old and um, you know everything in between every walk of life uh, every demographic and and people were able to share their stories on trail and and you know it was really a, a, an awesome experience and we've continued kind of built on that ideal ever since uh, we have a pretty decent mailing list if you will and, and unfortunately again we keep talking all of us keep talking about COVID kind of shutting these things down we're really thankful that we can be getting into outdoor spaces and doing organized activities again. But uh, we did a, a trout fishing through the ice uh, up on Devil's Lake a couple of weeks ago, and we had 46 people show up. So um, we did not catch 46 fish, however. But uh, um, we, we had a great did time. Did you catch any fish? We caught six trout. Thank you very well, much. That's better than the last time <laughs> I was out there. So Yeah, hey. well, Al Alex was there. So, you know, he, he, uh, he helped us. I mean, come on, that was our ringer. But, uh, um, uh, but to that point, you know, we, we set it up in such a way that we were trying to encourage anybody who, it was interesting how many of the folks that came out had never, ever been on the ice like that before. Most of the folks that came out had never ice fished before. And um, so we intentionally encouraged folks to bring their families, to bring the kids out to obviously get them engaged and interested. But we set it up in such a way that some of the kids brought their lacrosse nets, for instance, and they were playing catch with lacrosse nets out on the ice when they got bored. Some kids brought their ice skates and they were ice skating around while like, waiting for the pop-ups to go. And um, it was really amazing. I mean, it was, it was a neat experience, but it created that sense of fun and that sense of community. Um, we had a, we had an underwater camera set up in one of the, in one of our shanties so that kids could watch things swimming around in front of the camera and I mean that just became more of a television for them than anything so there was about six kids huddled in there watching nature tv um so uh it's those types of outings and those types of activities that we really try to set up for people so it's not just this one thing we're not just ice fishing but you can come out and just enjoy the outdoors and to that point then those kids that that left that day they got to see how trout were caught they got to see what a trout was like they got to see the habitat obviously both above and below the water but then they also got to see that you can enjoy yourself in a whole variety of different ways in the outdoor spaces and appreciate it that way. Um, and so we, you know, we've done that with some of our other outings as well, where we've done hikes, but we've also 
done, you know, food on the trail kind of thing, or, uh, you know, other similar events where we've kind of, you know, folded a variety of different activities into the same day. I love it. You, the, the, the emphasis on fun is, um, can, cannot be understated, right? Like having lacrosse sticks handy, ice skates, doing all these things. Um, I grew up very, very, um, middle-class Northern Wisconsin. So like my dad believed hunting was suffering, uh, be it chasing rabbits with beagles or deer, deer hunting, right? It was cold, it was miserable. You don't make any noise and you kind of just sit there and suffer in silence. So to hear, um, and when I do learn to hunt, I've got a similar to the turkey hunt, you know, the field day we have coming up this weekend with pheasants forever and uh, becoming an outdoors woman. Uh, I take a complete opposite approach. Like I want people to have fun, right? The only, the only way they're going to come back, enjoy the outdoors and potentially have an interest in hunting um, is if it's enjoyable, it can't, it can't be a miserable experience their first time outside. Cause like you said, there's already these layers, these already these, these fears, these phobias, um, so if we can, if we can enjoy that first time out and have some fun, uh, it's gonna, it's gonna hopefully bring them back for more. Yeah, I think, you know, that that's, you know, one of the things that we talked about in, in our, you know, in our, our class last night was embracing the suck, you know, and, and understanding that, that it's not always going to be successful. It's not always going to be fun. And the weather's not always going to be great. But preparing for that and kind of planning on it, planning for the worst and hoping for the best, you know, and to that point, then say, well, um, I can't tell you how many, how many parents, and, and I'm sure we've all been through this as, as kids, you know, how many parents got angry with their kids because they couldn't sit still because they couldn't be quiet because oh, you blew up, you messed up the whole thing, uh, you know, and if you go into it with, with that attitude, that, that's, that kid is to your, to the point you said, you know, hunting was, was supposed to be miserable as opposed to, you know, that was super fun. We saw woodpeckers and we saw a box and the squirrel was being a real pain in the butt and blah, blah, blah. And oh yeah, we were supposed to be deer hunting. But that's the experience that, again, that's, that makes it fun. And, and you know, um, unless you're in a survival situation where you absolutely need to have food on the table by the end of the day, it's okay to, to quote unquote. And, I, and then this is another thing that, that I don't necessarily agree with when someone says, well, I gave up my hunt in order for my, my kid or my friend or whomever to enjoy it. Or I, you know, I sacrificed my, my day in the woods. No, you didn't. You're still outside, right? You were still able to engage and you were, and you were teaching another person that, that to me, that's the biggest honor in the world is being able to pass that information, that knowledge, that experience, um, that good energy for lack of a better way of putting it, you know, onto our, onto the next person, whether it be a young person, next generation type of situation, or teaching somebody who's your age or older, who's just never done it before and never felt comfortable. Uh, you know, as we get older, our egos get bigger. And oftentimes we have a real hard time admitting that we don't know something and, and, and asking for help and, and being willing to say, you know, being willing to be a bit humble and say, okay, I don't know everything. Can you please show me how to do it? I think that's awesome to be, and you have somebody who's a willing student, right. And, and what better way to spend time with somebody who's willing to listen and learn. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a great opportunity to, to be able to connect with folks on a variety of levels. It's a great opportunity to teach skills in many cases that don't necessarily directly 
relate to what it was you went out to plan to do in the first place. Um, one of the things I'm definitely planning on doing when we're out in the field with these folks for turkey season is bringing binoculars and a rangefinder along, right? And and let's glass, let's see what else we can see, let's see what you can hear. Rangefinders can be fun, like a video game, like oh yeah, I wonder how far that tree went. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I, let's guess, let's let's put a bet on who's who, how far that you know that you're engaging in a far different way than you anticipated, but again, you can actually be learning things um, and making them fun. So, um, you know, we'll, and to the point of, we talked about the other night when you're out in Turkey woods, especially this time of year, uh, you can see all kinds of different, you can forage. I mean, depending on what kind of mushrooms are out this time of year, you can, you can do all kinds of different things. And, uh, um, you know, I mean, I've come back from, from various, different game hunts with a whole bag full of different things that have nothing to do with what the actual harvest was intended. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I definitely can echo bill. I grew up with the, the, the suck and the fun aspect is like I said, I'm so jazzed to do an ice fishing one. Cause you're right. You can't put together a better scenario because it's camaraderie. It's there's no worrying about being quiet. You know, you're still doing an art activity, but yeah, we definitely got to, do the ice fishing next year. I'm just, just how you described it is exactly what, you know, a perfect like entry level, like getting people just, and, and think about it too. A lot of times that time of year, it's cold and people don't want to be outside. So you get something like that together. I mean, that's pretty cool. So. And I think, you know, to that point of it, of it sucking, right. I think that that's the other thing that we can do um, as mentors, as educators is to just explain how you can reduce that right? You know, proper clothing, proper footwear, more times than not, you know, folks are in such a hurry to get outside that they're not paying attention to the other person. And then they get out there and like, you wore those, what you, oh, you forgot your what, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so, uh, you know, if you have a raccoon skin hat, like, uh, uh somebody here, no, but I mean, you can make it fun. Right. And, and, um, but, but layering up. And I always, I always, if I have somebody coming with me, I always pack, for them as well as for me, you know? So in my, in my bag, I've got extra hand warmers and extra foot warmers. If it's cold, I typically put at least one or two extra pairs of socks, no matter what time of year it is. Um, you know, those hats, you know, those types of things that, uh, more than more times than not, people will forget. And I've forgotten, you know, so I'm, I'm, you know, I've done this my entire life, but, uh, and, and instead of chastising a person and making them feel bad about some of those types, or even if they make noise or if they spook an animal or whatever, Hey, you know what? Now you see what happens when you aren't quiet or now you see what happens when you don't X, Y, or Z or yeah, you didn't expect that Turkey to come up behind you. Did you, you know, kind of thing. And that's a learning experience. It, it just teaches you how to, how to do better the next time. Well, I think teaching the mentors that too, because I felt like my first few mentored hunts, I felt so much pressure to be successful. Like I felt like as a mentor, like I was just a horrible mentor. If I didn't get my mentee a bird or a deer. And I think it took a couple different cycles for me to really take a step back and be like, we don't need to be hard charging to get ahead of, you know, are they comfortable? Are they enjoying themselves? Are they learning something like, but it took me a while. And I think that's something that's really important too, for new mentors is understanding that you may be a veteran experienced hunter, but it's not about the success of the hunt being about getting an animal as it is to take a step back and really just make sure that that person has a good experience. Most definitely, you know, and another thing that, that I think doesn't get discussed often is when you take folks out for their first hunt and they decide they don't, they can't, they can't do it. They can't shoot. 
right? Or they, you know, they can't shoot the bow, they can't shoot the gun, they can't do whatever was expected of them. And, and making sure that you say, you know, you say ahead of time, this is, this is your challenge by choice, right? Like you, this is something that you need to feel comfortable doing. And if you get to that moment and it just doesn't, it just doesn't feel right, then don't do it. Um, you know, you, there's no judgment here. And, and I think that's another thing that takes that edge off, um, uh, you know, because we, we do put that pressure on ourselves and, you know, and to your point, we get so excited about wanting to make sure that they have a great time and they, oh, there, you know, there it is, there it is, there it is, you know, and, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, wow, that was probably not so cool because they're already shaking a thousand miles an hour. So uh, we just not add, you know, well to that experience. So, yeah, I think it is kind of a, it's a, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those self, self humbling situations as well as to be able to put a damper on your excitement on some levels uh, to make sure that they don't get um, too tweaked out and nervous in the process of doing stuff. And, you know, and one thing I will add to this, you know, is, is being self-aware in, in who you're out in the woods with and understanding that people come from different backgrounds, people come from different households. Um, and, you know, and I'll say this very bluntly, I think there's, there's a lot of folks who are like, oh, everyone's too PC, et cetera. But we do have to be sensitive still. We have to be sensitive to each other and, and be respectful and, and understand that, you know, words we use can, can really make a difference. And, and again, that experience and whether a person wants to come back. And if they had a terrible experience with a mentor, um, that might ruin the hunt for them. Um, you know, and so I think that that's another thing to consider. There is a little, uh, uh, not a little, there's a lot of responsibility on our parts as mentors to, to be respectful uh, of not only the participant, but of the space we're in and the land we're on. So um, I think that's another thing to really pay attention to when we're out there. I want to, I couldn't agree with, more with you on that. Um, kind of circling back, you kind of touched on that in the, in the very beginning of the podcast when you talked about uh, the layers of tension and as well as, you know, covering covering what that means in, within six podcasts. Um, before the show, I uh, mentioned knowing uh, John Greendeer and Chris Monson here in Stevens Point. Um, they've, they've been kind enough to invite me into their home and teach me uh, traditional Ho-Chunk ways of um, tanning deer hides, so brain tanning. And over the last few years of learning that and um, being a student under the, their system and their, their traditions, uh, it's, def it's definitely opened my eyes to the, what you're talking about, right? Being sensitive to uh, where people come from, their households, their, uh, their backgrounds. Uh, for me, uh, the biggest, and I know I've reading the website for Color in the Outdoors, stewardship, sustainability, education and mentorship are core components of the color and the outdoors um kind of their model and philosophy two two of the biggest books for me in the last couple of years of um getting more involved with mentored mentored positions in the outdoor space has been uh black faces and white spaces by carolyn finney and then um we've got wisconsin first nations by patty Lowe has been a Anytime I go anywhere in Wisconsin on public land, I bring that book with me and read about traditionally what 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 tribes, what families, what cultures would have been um, not only recreating or using because that, those are those are modern terms, right? But actually living on the land, living from the land, living with the land, and being aware of that while I'm going through these areas has definitely um, given me a new level of awareness and sensitivity to how I use them, the words I use especially here in Wisconsin, we're um, blessed to have many of these tribes still around and 
um, sharing their culture and their um, ways with us. So it's been pretty cool. And I invite anyone listening to definitely go back and review those books um, and kind of dive deeper and get more educated on a lot of these, these uh, things that Chris is talking about. There's um, uh, so Carolyn and Patty are both friends of mine. And so, you know, that's not a name drop. That's a, they are amazing human beings that I have just a, the utmost respect for. Um, actually, Patty was a friend, but then also a, a former professor of mine at the university before she went down to uh, Northwestern. And um, I helped her teach a class up in Bad River um, one summer, a digital storytelling class for youth. And uh, uh, Carolyn and I have been in a variety of different spaces together. Uh, there's another couple other books that I guess I would really strongly recommend. Um, one of them is Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin um, oh, Kimmerer. And uh, the, the other book is um, The Adventure Gap by a friend of mine, James Edward Mills, who writes about kind of the disparities in outdoor spaces. Um, he's actually a, a guest lecturer at the Nelson Institute at UW-Madison now, and he's worked on a couple of films. He's actually in the process of working on the, uh, the documentary about the first all-Black ascent on Mount Everest as we speak. He's just getting ready to go to base camp. So, um, uh, and I guess I would be remiss to your point of, uh, you know, I was talking about kind of knowing where you stand uh, literally and figuratively. Uh, and, you know, in, in Wisconsin, we have to kind of pay homage and, and be aware of the fact that we're, you know, we're on traditional Ho-Chunk land and understanding to that point, there's actually several different websites you can go on to find out wherever you are in the United States and, and elsewhere, what the traditional occupants of that land, who they were, uh, and not necessarily in a historical context, but who they are, right? And I think we need to th think about that too, to your point. Um, there's 11 federally recognized tribes in the state of Wisconsin and, and one of the Brotherton tribe that's still working on federal recognition again. Um, it's a, we have an incredibly uh, diverse community of, of our indigenous brothers and sisters here in the state and in nearby areas. Um, and uh, to that point, I mean, it's an incredibly rich culture and history that is still, still a thing. And that's, we, we look at in many cases, indigenous communities in a historic nature, but no, uh, you know, uh, our friends, our brothers, our sisters, our uncles, our aunts, our cousins are all still in, in here and, and doing amazing things. Um, and to your point with the Green Deer family, I mean, I, I can't, can't say enough about, about that family and the things that, that John is doing. Um, there's a whole, you know, there's Bill Quackenbush, there's uh, just a ton of different people uh, in the state of Wisconsin, uh, Dan Cornelius over in the Oneida Nation working on sustainable farming practices, um, just, it's, it, you know, I could go on for days. Um, and so I think it's really, really important to kind of pay attention to that. Um, and, you know, to, to the point of Wisconsin and Wisconsin tradition, right? We talk about the hunting tradition in Wisconsin. And I always, I, I wish I had, you know, I, I have this like prop I want to carry around with, which is like an asterisk on a stick. And be like, you know, the hunting tradition in Wisconsin, I want to be like, bloop. Mm, yeah, whose tradition are we talking about here? Because if we're talking history, history, yeah, we can go back a ways, right? And we need to be under, we need to understand that and be respectful of it, right? And um, and I also kind of laugh when people, when, when farmers, for instance, start talking about sustainable no-till agriculture. I'm like, Phew, this is nothing new. Uh, you know, this is something that's been around for for much much longer than most folks' families have been here. Uh, and you talk about the three sisters and corn, beans, and squash, and how they live symbiotically, and how they provide different nutrients and different you know controls for one another in the process of growing. That's been around for a while. So 
Uh, and to that point of hunting practices and trapping and fishing and all of those types of things, modern day folks didn't invent those things, right? We came up with easy ways to make it a little bit easier to harvest. We made, came up with different hooks and you know, scopes that we can see way longer than our old eyes can see nowadays. But uh, this, this tradition and, and these techniques have been around for quite a long time. And we can learn, you know, we can continue to learn from, from some of those practices for sure. Love it. Uh, Kelly, you're, you're a late arrival. What do you, what do you got for us? Just absorbing it all. Sorry. I'm late. Like I mentioned in the chat and for the rest of the listeners, I was imbibing in a classic Wisconsin tradition known as the Wednesday fish fry. <clears throat> and also a, not just a Wednesday fish fry, but a smelt fish fry. So, um, we're, uh, maybe maybe worthwhile to miss the beginning, but um, I, I'm sorry that I missed the beginning for um, to hear some more more of the background. But the uh, all of this is striking a chord with me. I will go back for a second to the the mentor discussion that you were all were having um, when I hopped on, which was who cares if people <laughs> who cares if people don't last out there? And I, it's a similar similar conversation I've been having with um, my brother-in-law, who's a adult onset hunter. Um, and I love hunting with him. And I've been talking with him about introducing his son, my godson to that, to hunting. Um, and Matt, if you ever listen to this, I totally respect where you're, where you're coming from. However, if your son only lasts half an hour in the turkey blind, I don't care. And that would be a great experience for him, whatever, whatever it takes to get him to get started. And if he decides after that amount of time, he doesn't like it all the better. I can go drink some more coffee and have breakfast. So, you know, whatever people are willing to engage with is kind of the, you know, the, at least the basis for what we build from. So that was a powerful conversation for me um, that I was hearing you all talk about. And then also this, the respect and reverence of um, talking about outdoor traditions in Wisconsin and who that started, quote, started with and uh, who, who we should be honoring for having those long before we ever showed up in the state of Wisconsin that also is really striking a chord with me. So thanks for bringing up those topics. You know, I, I'd, I'd like to, to that point of camaraderie, like to, to go back, uh, um, you know, to talk about these moments where I've been in situations where, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a, a tiny person. Um, I, uh, I tend to take up space in spaces I'm in. Um, but, but definitely still, still wind up running into situations where I feel a little bit awkward or uncomfortable, depending on what the vibe of the space or the room is. Right. And, and I think that that's, that's palpable. And that's something that a lot of people don't take into consideration that are the majority that, that take up those spaces. Right. And I think that that's to, to the point of those listeners that may be hearing this is that if you, if you've never thought about it before, you know, maybe do maybe think about kind of how you walk into a room and what kind of space you take up. And if you see an other, right, if you see anyone that doesn't look like you or doesn't look like familiar or doesn't seem like they quote unquote belong, um, why is that? Why do they seem that way? Why do you look at them that way? But how could you make them feel welcome? And, uh, you know, just something as simple as to that point of Wednesday smelt fry, hashtag, we didn't get any thanks for not sharing. Uh, I think that, uh, I think it'd be important to be able to just say, you know, that, that kind of typical or even stereotypical, Hey, how's it going? You know, something as simple as just that can, can break all the ice, right. And pun intended for your ice fishing outing, Joe, but uh, 
Um, I think that that's that is super important. And, and, and I think that there have been more situations than not where, where once you just say hello to a person who seems like they are a little uncomfortable or, or feel out of place, uh, you can see that kind of slowly start to melt away. And um, now, you know, again, I mean, we can acknowledge the fact that that isn't always the case. We can acknowledge the fact that you can walk in and you get the, the stairs and the glares the whole time you're there. Um, but, but even quite frankly, to that point, that that shouldn't necessarily if you're with if you're with folks and you feel relatively safe that shouldn't be enough of a deterrent to to scare you away and uh, so i recommend um for folks that are listening for anybody who's wondering like what can i do to do better or to help that's what you can do you can can help people feel included in spaces and in, in outings um and uh i mean i i I had a fantastic time the first time I met you, Joe, and, and you know we laughed and, and goofed around, and, and I mean it was that was it. it I, I didn't think twice about it, right? Like this is a person I like, and I'm going to hang out with it, you know, in the future, and I'm going to tease incessantly about not coming out to visit me. Um, but uh, uh, to that point, I mean that's and that's why uh, back to the color in the outdoors space. I mean we you know we we're in the process of of purchasing some land right before. Um, the pandemic hit, we were lucky enough to acquire 92 acres before the pandemic hit. And we've been very actively turning this space into a safe and shared space for people moving forward. So when we do have programming for small groups, we do it out here and um, we want to be able to create that, that welcoming environment um, and that kind of that space where you can learn these skills without having to feel that pressure of, of feeling as though you don't belong or without having to worry about who you may run into on trail, et cetera. Uh, that's what this space is for. But with the hopes that then we can continue to, to create larger groups and create outings that group people can do in groups, but also connect with other groups. I mean, that's something that just makes me smile every time you talk about collaborating, right? And you have BHA, you have Business Forever, you have you know, all, all these different organizations, uh, Color in the Outdoors, Outdoor Afro, Latino Outdoors, um, you know, all of these groups that can get together and together being the operative word, right, to do these things, to learn from and with each other uh, and to, to share, share space around the fire, share space on trail, share space in the field and, and hopefully at the end of the day, you know, share the harvest, um, whether it be uh, berries and mushrooms that you found because you didn't get anything uh, or or small or large game and uh, you know and I think to that point that's that is again the food is a great equalizer uh, spent a lot of time with a, with a mouth and a belly full and lots of great memories to boot well it just resonates with the whole concept of you know we've done a rendezvous several years now you know and now we're approaching going to be our fourth, fourth rendezvous, you know, COVID halted it a little bit, but you know, the concept of coming together, you know, a rendezvous. And I think that, you know, we can, it's always been a BHA rendezvous, but I think like just the idea of continuing to expand that to include all these groups, you know, whether you're there as a participant or you're there as, you know, like a member of BHA, but expanding those kind of things, you know, where we have camping campfires, you know, where there isn't that pressure, where is that, you know, ability to have an open space. So I think, you know, Mark your calendar, July 30th, Horicon. We're going to be having our plug for Wisconsin BHA rendezvous. And, you know, obviously calling the outdoors, anybody you can think of, you know, shout it from the rooftops and get them out there. And the more people we have there and the different 
you know, ideologies and opinions. It just makes that that much more fun and interesting. Nobody wants to sit around and hear the same stories every year that I got to tell. So, I mean, let, let's get some new voices in there. Absolutely. And, you know, I'd like to, to kind of piggyback on what Kelly was saying earlier about, like, if you only want to spend 20 minutes outside, then that's all you got to spend. Um, and I think that's the other thing is that people sometimes don't go to things like the rendezvous and other things like that, where they think, oh, if I go, I got to stay and I don't want to stay. And, you know, you can show up for as long as you feel comfortable. We had people show up to that ice fishing for trout event who had never spent any time on the ice. And they literally walked out, stood around for about 10 minutes. They're like, this is freaking me out. And they left. But then they told me later, they're like, that was so cool. And I'm going to do it again. But I was so terrified at the time. And I was like, that's okay. Like, that's how you, you know, that's how you get used to it is literally one step at a time. So, yeah, I think it's, uh, uh, you know, those types of things. And, and, and quite frankly, that type of message, uh, you know, everyone's welcome. We want you to be here. Um, you know, tell your friends and let's, let's have some fun. Love it. Love it. Uh, Brock, my man, you're you're the new R three, new R three guy. This is we 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 threw you into the fire today with this podcast. What's going What's going on over in your world right now? Ah, uh, you know, there is just a lot running through my head right now with all this. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, there's just so much that's going to be coming up, and then uh, I'm just so excited to be a part of and help uh, refire, re-getting wood in the fire for our R3 program and collaborating with people like Chris and Marty from NWTF and, uh, or Marty from PF and John from NWTF. And, uh, um, everybody's got such an awesome set of skills that they're going to be able to put forward. And, um, hopefully we're going to be getting stuff going in each section of the state, uh, so that it's more easily accessible for everybody to get to. So if you're listening to this in green Bay, hopefully we're going to have something up in the Green Bay area with an hour with an hour or so drive or a couple hours or something. You don't gotta come down to my neck of the woods down in Richmond Center. So um yeah, it's just gonna be I think great going forward and great working with Chris and um just so excited to be part of the board and get going again on this. So yeah. Love it. Good to have you, buddy. Uh Joe Kelly, what do you Final final questions, thoughts for Chris before we wrap this up. Well, Kelly looks preoccupied with a dog here. So I guess I was gonna let her go first, but I'll jump in. No, I mean, obviously the same thing that Chris said. The minute I met him, I knew that we were probably gonna be friends for a while. So um excited to have him on, excited for these collaboration opportunities with him and his group, and you know, just looking forward to what the future holds and excited to have him on today. I don't, I don't want to repeat yeah, thanks, anything. That was, I don't want to repeat anything that was said. So Bill, you're going to have to do some editing work. If we're, if I ask a question that, that was already talked about. I mean, well, one of the things that um, I feel like this came up way back, Bill, on one of the first podcast episodes we ever did together, we were talking about how, um, you know, as we, as we try to invite a diverse set of stakeholders outdoors and recognizing that, Folks like Bill and I have had a lot of privilege ever since we were first introduced to the outdoors to do things like take a firearm on public land and not be scared about it. And um, how do we, how do folks like us mostly that are here tonight uh, stand in somebody else's shoes and realize that that is not this that is not the frame of mind that 
frame of reference that that other folks will come from when we're talking about getting folks into hunting, hunting in public spaces. So um, again, I don't want to rehash anything, but Chris, I'm always curious about you know how not how do we fix that? I don't know if there is a fix, but how do how does somebody like me um, do better to be mindful that that is that is the reality for other folks that I might try to invite into the outdoors? Well, I'd, I'd offer that just by asking that question is a great first step. Um, and I think I, you know, I, to, to try to be the spokesperson for all the other, you know, all the folks that have been othered, if you will, um, you know, is a, is a slippery slope that I, I'm trying to make sure I'm respectful of. But um, several suggestions, I guess I would say to anyone that's interested in saying, how can I engage? How can I engage maybe better? How can I engage at all? How can I engage differently? Um, is to, is to, do it in the way that you just presented. Like I need to acknowledge and own who I am and where I came from to that point of acknowledging this, the land on which you stand and, and your space, right? Um, owning uh, the fact that perhaps you had a different experience, um, whether it be a matter of privilege or not. Um, I, um, you know, I think it's a different experience. And, and how, do, how do you think when you walk into a room you're perceived versus somebody else? Um, I, I think it's never a matter of, you'll, you're never going to be able to stand in someone else's shoes, but you can stand next to them. And I think to that point, you can to make a very active uh, you know, point of saying to people, like, I'm, I, we're trying to create this space. We're trying to share this space. And sometimes it takes, how can we do that? Asking uh, one person to say, how, how do you think I should do this? How do you think we as an organization should do things differently uh, in order to create this more welcoming space? Quite frankly, the bottom line is um, oftentimes it's just a matter of representation. It's a matter of having, you know, being able to get more people um, around the table to have these conversations. And um, I think that that's the beginning, right? You may not necessarily, first time you have a pheasant hunt, for instance, get a bunch of people out in the woods with, or out in the field um, with a gun it, for, the, for all of those reasons, right? Um, but to have a meet and greet, to have a, to have a picnic, Right to get have a get together and and to to try to connect with network with other organizations that might indeed have groups of folks that that uh, you're interested in doing outreach with, um, and I think there's also a very delicate balance between uh, trying to meet quotas and trying to look diverse, uh, trying to get a photo op versus genuinely digging in and investing in trying to to move the needle and to change the narrative on a long term scale instead of just a hey look we did this thing once. Um, and, uh, I've, I've been in many a conversation where I've had to stop people in mid sentence, you know, when they say, I'm not racist, I have a stop, 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 stop. Um, you know, and, and so you really do need to kind of back it up and, and talk about those things in real terms. And, and for folks that, that are to, to your point, uh, you know, to your point, Kelly, as far as the folks that are like you, that do look like you, that do take up space like you do. Um, being able to have that conversations with other folks in the similar space to say, hey, y'all, we need to do things differently. And here are some ideas that I have. And here are some conversations that I've had. Um, and being an advocate and an ally from that respect, too. It, it, it can be, as we all know, it can be dicey um, standing alone in a room full of people. Um, because depending on what, what group you're in and where you are, uh, you very well might be the only person that thinks and believes that way. But Sometimes that's what it takes to make change. One thing you said, Chris, that really struck me as I 
here, my, that puppy that you just saw scratch around in her crate in the background um, was this idea that if we invite events where we have, some, we invite folks to events where we have some common ground, like to share food together, that maybe is the first step rather than just naively kind of reaching out to groups and be like, do you want to hunt with us? You know, where that might not be the common ground, because I, again, I don't want to be the person that naively assumes that everybody is going to feel immediately comfortable with that space. But um, Bill, this is something I've always appreciated about it. your message is that, you know, things like food and gathering are very comfortable spaces for people generally. And so how do we get folks there first, potentially, if their comfort level is not immediately, you know, with something like a firearm or a bow on public land, and then eventually, if, as comfort grows, invite them into those spaces that, while recognizing that our worldviews and experiences and barriers to getting into those spaces are very different. And, but our common ground could be in a, in a different way with the long-term view of inviting them ultimately to something like a hunting space. You know, and, and just one thing to interject with that is, is kind of knowing the temperature of the world right now, right? And thinking about some of this, the, the recent history that we've had to face and some of the conflicts uh, and understanding again to that point that that, that, is, that is an influencer. Um, not in the social media way, but uh, uh, the influencer of how people think and how people react. And, you know, the, and for those that don't know, you know, there was a, uh, an African gentleman that was invited to go hunting with a bunch of friends, uh, with a colleague, and uh, he was murdered. Um, so I, quite bluntly, I had a, a hunt, I had a group of folks that were going to come hunting for this spring turkey hunt uh, beyond this group, the group that we're doing next week. And every single person said, yep, nope. Um, I do not after that kind of thing. And then, you know, those types of things can, can knock you back multiple, multiple steps and, and understanding the whys and then being able to, to address that real time and to have conversations to be able to kind of get back on board and, and keep moving forward. So yeah, to your point, I mean, it's sometimes you just, you just have to understand that it's, it's a slow process. It has to be an intentional process, but uh, you know, the fact that y'all invited me to come on board tonight, I really do, I commend you and I, I respect that and I appreciate the, the space and the opportunity to have this conversation. Um, and, you know, again, not to sound too cliche, but y'all are the change makers, right? Like this is, these conversations make a difference. Um, and with other organizations that are doing similar things and trying to engage in similar ways, uh, this, is, this is the way that change is made. Well, thank you, Chris. We, uh, we really truly appreciate you coming on today. Um, thanks for giving us an hour of your time. And, um, I really, I really hope this, this helps people. It, uh, resonates with mentors. Um, I, I really hope this message gets out there. So we've got more mindful mentors in, in the BHA space, in the Wisconsin hunting, fishing, trapping outdoor space. And that, um, mentors realize, like Joe said, way back, way back at the beginning of the podcast, that it's not just about it's not just about the harvest, right? Like when we first get into mentoring, a lot of us think it's about the harvest, but it's about so much more than that. And uh, I think if people look to your organization, Color in the Outdoors, and kind of see the way you're going about about that and inviting you into their organizations, their events, their communities, we're going to grow a bigger and greater appreciation for the outdoors. Well, again, I appreciate the, the airtime and I appreciate the conversation. I definitely appreciate what all y'all are doing. And uh, I'm looking forward to many, many more opportunities to have conversation, but also to be outside, spend some time in the woods. 
and uh, um, expecting Kelly some uh, fried fish when you show up next time. Thank mm -hmm. you.